Norman Centuries by Lars Brownworth Episode 14, William the Bad Welcome back. Last time we talked about the reign of Roger II, who created the Norman Kingdom of Sicily and held it together against hostile emperors and popes. He died in 1154, after a reign of 26 years, and was sincerely mourned. He was succeeded by his youngest son, William, who, by all outward appearances, was a splendid choice. William, an illustrious Norman name ever since 1066, was a magnificent physical specimen, a hulking throwback to his Viking ancestors, easily towering over his diminutive Mediterranean subjects. His face was dominated by a thick black beard, and he was known for his massive strength, reportedly able to straighten an iron horseshoe with his bare hands. But if he loomed larger than his father physically, he had acquired little of his political skills, Much of this was Roger's own fault. It's always difficult to succeed a great man, but Roger hardly bothered to prepare his heir, and in fact lost no opportunity of pointing out his son's shortcomings. William was the youngest of the four boys from his first marriage, considered unlikely and unworthy to ever wear the crown. As such, he was virtually ignored, given no important administrative or military office to prepare him for leadership. William grew up largely left to himself, enjoying the luxuries of the palace without any of its responsibilities. But then, within a single decade, his older brothers unexpectedly died, and at the age of 30, he was abruptly thrust on the throne, completely unprepared. Not surprisingly, William was more concerned with enjoying the good life than learning statecraft. While he built ever more extravagant palaces, he left the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom to others, in most cases not even bothering to appoint new ministers, but simply confirming his father's choices in their posts. The only exception he made to this general policy was to raise a young chancellor named Mayo to the supreme administrative post of admiral, or emir of emirs. It was a wise choice. Mayo was the son of a judge from the southern Italian town of Bari, and had received the best classical education money could buy. In the cosmopolitan atmosphere of Palermo, he more than held his own, displaying a ruthless disregard of popularity or softness. Without his iron hand, William, who was far more interested in hunting parks than governing, would have been lucky to keep his throne for more than a few months. The international stage had gotten much more dangerous since the last years of Roger II. The Byzantine and Holy Roman empires were both ruled by outstanding figures, the ferocious Frederick Barbarossa in Germany, and the smooth Manuel Comnenus in Constantinople. Fortunately for William, their mutual distrust kept them for the moment checked. At his coronation, Barbarossa had announced that he would restore the Roman Empire to greatness. This meant bringing Sicily and southern Italy under his control, and since both of those territories recently belonged to Byzantium, Barbarossa considered the Emperor Manuel to be his principal enemy. With this in mind, he signed a treaty with the Pope to exclude Byzantium from any division of the Norman kingdom. At the same time, he kept up a correspondence with Manuel, dangling the idea of a mutual campaign but always finding an excuse to delay it. Manuel only discovered the deception after Barbarossa's army had already left for Germany to win Italy without him. The German monarch expected trouble in the north of Italy. Anti-imperial sentiment was always strong. But when he descended from the Alps, he found the entire peninsula in an uproar. Pope Adrian IV, the only Englishman to ever sit on the papal throne, was the latest in a long line of foreign reforming popes, 
He had cut his teeth reorganizing the Scandinavian church and expected to do a thorough house-cleaning of St. Peter's. His entry into Rome, however, had been a rude awakening. Papal authority in the city had been eroding for years as the Roman Senate and aristocratic families gained power. Now there was a popular movement to restore the old Republican traditions, divest the church of its temporal power, and return the city to its ancient greatness. The leader of this movement was a monk by the name of Arnold of Brescia, and he so thoroughly whipped up public sentiment that Adrian became a prisoner on the Vatican Hill. Adrian responded by adopting the shocking tactic of excommunicating the entire city, essentially declaring war on Rome. No tourists, church services, baptisms, weddings, or burials in consecrated ground would be allowed until the interdict was lifted. It was a daring maneuver for a new foreign pope to attempt, given the mood of the day, to return Rome to the Romans. But the gambit worked. Arnold resisted until the Wednesday of Holy Week, but the prospect of an Easter without the sacrament, much less the lucrative tourist trade, undermined his support. By the morning of Monday Thursday, he had been expelled by his own partisans, and Adrian celebrated the Easter Mass in triumph. The victory pacified Rome for the moment, but did little to settle the rest of the North. Barbarossa, meanwhile, was in no mood to deal with Republican idealists. When the town of Tortona resisted in the name of Republic, he demolished it stone by stone and deported the entire population. Still in a foul mood, he then turned toward Rome. His approach caught Adrian in an uncomfortable position. The Pope was painfully aware of how fragile his grip on Rome was. The populace was still dreaming of self-rule, and he mistrusted an overpowerful Barbarossa. Having won a temporary victory against the Republicans, he had no desire to become a pawn of the German emperor. He set up camp outside the city and waited. Their meeting was not a smooth one. The emperor intended to enter Rome as its master, and the pope just as stubbornly insisted on maintaining his dignity. Barbarossa at first refused to perform the customary act of guiding the pope's horse on foot, protesting that he wasn't a groom, but Adrian made it quite clear that there would be no entry into Rome at all without it. Barbarossa withdrew in a huff, but when he realized the pope wouldn't budge, he had the meeting restaged and grudgingly performed the homage. With that unpleasantness out of the way, the two came to an agreement. Under no circumstances would either make peace with William of Sicily, the Emperor Emmanuel, or the Republican Commune in Rome. In return, Adrian agreed to excommunicate Barbarossa's enemies, while the Emperor would enforce the Pope's authority. Adrian had chosen to meet outside of Rome for good reason. As the two rode in state toward the gates, they were met by messengers from the commune who informed the pair that they would only be admitted to the city if Barbarossa first offered a gift of 5,000 pounds of gold and guaranteed their ancestral rights. They then launched into a long speech about the glorious heritage of Rome. Barbarossa interrupted mid-sentence with a curt, Rome's greatness is behind it. I haven't come to give gifts, but to claim what is mine. With that, the two marched into the city and Barbarossa was crowned. But that proved to be a bridge too far for the citizens. News of an imperial coronation in a city intoxicated by the thought of independence caused a frenzy, and the mob assaulted the imperial procession as Frederick was leaving the cathedral. For once, Barbarossa was caught unprepared, and the street fighting raged long into the night. By the next morning, order had been restored, but casualties had been terrible on both sides. The German barons made it clear that they wished to return home, and Barbarossa, a feudal monarch after all, was unable to resist them. 
Adrian begged him to continue with the original plan of invading Sicily, but within a month, the Germans were gone. Manuel Comnenus, meanwhile, was preparing his own invasion. He found ready support from the Pope, who was furious with Barbarossa for deserting him. Adrian had greatly weakened his own position in Rome and received nothing tangible in return. It didn't matter to him who crushed the Norman kingdom. If the Germans wouldn't help, then the distant Byzantines were an acceptable surrogate. He wrote to Manuel, giving him his full blessing for an attack on Sicily. Manuel, for his part, was still unaware that the Germans had betrayed him. His messengers met Barbarossa just before he returned over the Alps and implored him to stay, but the German nobles had fulfilled their feudal obligations and had no more stomach for an Italian campaign. Fortunately for the Byzantines, however, there were plenty of other allies close at hand. The Norman barons of southern Italy had never really been reconciled to being ruled from Palermo. Their stubborn independence, that same quality that had won them their lands in Italy, made rebellion a permanent threat. More than a decade had passed since Roger II had reigned them in, and the relatively light hand of his successor was seen as weakness. When Manuel sent feelers to Apulia, he found an eager stable of allies. Together, they posed a more formidable threat than even the Germans had. The barons provided local knowledge and an army, and Manuel provided a supply fleet and unlimited funds to raise fresh troops. Their first target was Bari. It was the most important Norman stronghold in the south, and Manuel was especially eager to recover it. Less than a century before, it had been part of the Byzantine Empire, before it had fallen to Robert Giscard, and most of the population was still Greek. The Normans prepared to resist, but when the Allied army drew up to the gates, the locals opened them, resulting in a general massacre of anyone loyal to Palermo. The fall of Bari was a major blow to the Norman kingdom, and it shook the loyalty of the Italian cities who hadn't joined the rebels. To make matters worse, William fell seriously ill, and in the absence of a response from Palermo, morale on the mainland plummeted. The king's admiral Mayo eventually sent an army to aid the beleaguered peninsula, but its general refused to engage the rebels for several months. When he finally did, the result was another fiasco. The royal army was wiped out and the few coastal towns who had wavered moved into the rebel camp. By the beginning of winter, virtually all of Apulia had crumbled. By now, William's rule seemed on the verge of collapse. In only six short months, the Emperor Manuel had restored Byzantine power in Italy to the level it had been before the Normans arrived, and he showed no signs of stopping. The imperial armies were poised to enter Calabria, and if that fell, which it undoubtedly would, the Byzantine force would be separated from Sicily by a thin stretch of water only a mile wide. Since the king was ill, the Normans' poor showing was blamed completely on his powerful minister, Mayo. The air of the capital was thick with assassination plots, which Mayo avoided thanks to his extensive network of secret police. When it became clear that he couldn't be removed covertly, a rebellion broke out on the island demanding his execution. The direct threat to his government finally roused William to action. Gathering the royal army, he descended on the rebel camp with surprising speed, Mayo at his side. The rebel leaders were given an ultimatum surrender and suffer exile, or be killed. A few tried to protest that they had the king's interests at heart, but Mayo clearly still had William's favor, and an assault on him was an assault on the king. Faced with such royal determination, the revolt crumbled and its leaders accepted exile. Now that he'd been shaken out of his lethargy, William's blood was up. 
In the spring campaigning season, he crossed over to the mainland with his army and navy. The timing couldn't have been better. The inspired Byzantine general Michael Palaeologus, architect of the overall imperial strategy, had just died, bringing the Byzantine advance to a halt. Now, at the sight of the entire armed might of Norman Sicily descending on their camp, the Norman allies deserted the Byzantines. The Greeks didn't stand a chance. In just over an hour, most of them were dead, and the Byzantine gains of the entire war were effectively wiped out. William marched unopposed to Bari, determined to punish the city for its massacre of the garrison. The leading citizens met him outside the gates and begged him to show mercy. He granted most of them their lives, but raised the city, sparing only the Cathedral of St. Nicholas and a few other churches. The rebel barons weren't so lucky. They had by now realized the error of abandoning their Byzantine allies, as each had to face the wrath of William on their own. One by one they were captured, tied with weights, and thrown into the sea. By the summer, it was all over. The king's final stop before returning to Palermo was Benevento, where he signed a treaty with the Pope, recognizing the Kingdom of Sicily's right to exist, and confirming all of William's claims in Italy. It had been a remarkably successful campaign, and it had the added benefit of convincing the Byzantine Emperor Manuel to make peace as well. He had come to the conclusion that Barbarossa was a more pressing threat, and needed to pit the Pope against him. If Adrian had come to terms with William, then he would as well. He initiated peace talks while at the same time cleverly funding a fresh rebellion in Italy to sweeten the eventual deal. The tactic worked. Convinced that a generous agreement with Byzantium was the only way to avoid perpetual rebellions, William released all of the Greek prisoners and signed a 30-year peace treaty. William's return to Palermo was rightfully triumphal, but once there, he slipped again into the pleasurable stupor of palace life. Administrative responsibilities were handed over to Mayo, who spent his time strengthening the Sicilian position in Italy to guard against the possibility of Barbarossa's eventual return. While the king was focused on enjoying the good life, and his chief minister concentrated on the mainland, however, the rest of the empire started to decay. In 1155, a Muslim revolt started in North Africa, and the badly outnumbered Normans were unable to suppress it. Urgent requests to Palermo for aid were ignored, and by 1159, all of Tripoli except the trading city of Madia had fallen. The threat roused William to send a small fleet, but it was destroyed by a storm, and he didn't bother himself further. The citizens of Madia bravely held out for over a year, waiting vainly for the expected relieving army. Finally, they struck a deal. They would send a delegation to Palermo, and, if it returned empty-handed, they would voluntarily surrender. A group dutifully set out, but when they reached the capital, they were bluntly told that the city wasn't worth the expense it would take to preserve it. The stunned ambassadors returned, Madia surrendered, and the Norman Empire in Africa ceased to exist. Mayo may have been correct in saving his resources for the mainland. Certainly his efforts in Italy were paying off. Barbarossa had returned, but with Sicilian backing, the northern Italian cities had formed the great Lombard League to oppose him. When the German emperor ordered Milan to surrender, it defied him, and managed to hold out for three years. To add insult to injury, the long-delayed continuation of his southern march revealed a disturbing reality. The towns that had grudgingly submitted to him resumed their opposition the moment his soldiers disappeared. By the fourth year of getting nowhere, even the iron-willed Barbarossa had had enough. He returned to Germany in disgust. 
But for all the international success of Miles' policies, he remained more deeply unpopular than ever in Sicily. To the local Sicilians, he represented the worst type of autocrat, overpowerful, arrogant, and unresponsive to public moods. He had sat by and watched while North Africa burned, and his co-religionists suffered. Even worse, as far as the local nobility was concerned, was Miles' habit of elevating Greeks or Arabs to positions of power over the heads of established aristocratic Normans. The fact that these appointees were qualified, capable individuals, or that the Sicilian Normans were all too often entitled, incompetent, and boorish, was irrelevant. Mayo, a foreigner himself from Bari, was the fountainhead of everything that ailed Sicily. There were countless assassination attempts, all successfully avoided by Mayo's intelligence network, but in the autumn of 1160, the admiral got word that his prospective son-in-law was implicated in the latest attempt to kill him. For all his savvy, Miles succumbed to the conceit that someone so close couldn't be involved, and a week later, he was struck down in the streets of Palermo. The news electrified the city, and the assassin, a man named Matthew Bonellis, became a folk hero. Bonellis, however, fled, fearing reprisals from the king, and riots instantly broke out. With half of Palermo in flames, William finally stirred. The mob was suppressed with difficulty, and for the first time, the king fully realized how hated Mayo had been. Facing a wave of popular unrest, he was forced to pardon everyone involved in the murder of his most trusted lieutenant, even gallingly awarding Benelis the title Savior of the Kingdom for his part in the brutal deed. His new status as beloved icon went straight to Matthew Benelis's head. Stepping into Mayo's position wasn't enough. He now schemed to get rid of William as well. While Benelis absented himself from Palermo to avoid the taint of regicide, a group of dissatisfied nobles had William seized in one of his palaces. The king tried desperately to jump out of a window to avoid his captors, but the entire royal family was arrested. If they had appointed a new king at that moment, William's reign would have been finished, but the conspirators couldn't decide whether to kill William or simply have him abdicate in favor of his nine-year-old son, Roger. While they argued about who would receive the crown, their followers began to systematically loot the main palace. As they squabbled, the mood in the city started to harden against them. William's reign may have had its share of disasters, but he wasn't directly blamed, only the men around him acting in his name. And while it was one thing to get rid of a hated minister, it was quite another to so mistreat an anointed king. The looting of the palace and the arrest of the royal family was enough to convince the citizens of Palermo who the real villains were. Once again, the palace was stormed, and the terrified rebels ran to the captive William and begged him to save them. William complied, and the rebels were allowed to leave, but the ordeal broke him. During the fighting, his eldest son and heir, Roger, had been killed, and when the first of his guards reached him, they found him huddled in a corner, sobbing. The rest of his reign was spent building a lavish new palace complete with fish ponds, fountains, pools, and a well-stocked hunting ground. He named it the Zisa, an Arabic word meaning splendid, and not even the terrible destruction of an earthquake which destroyed much of western Sicily could distract him from its construction. In his last decade, he left Palermo only once, a triumphal procession through Italy where he defeated a German army and installed a new pope in Rome. The next spring, he contracted a fever, and after a two-month illness, he died. He was only 46. History hasn't been kind to William's reputation. His main chronicler, Hugo Falcandus, despised him, 
end is responsible for his nickname of William the Bad. The king's excessive lifestyle was the root of much of this displeasure. As one historian put it, if his father Roger II was the baptized sultan, William hardly bothered with the baptism. But in 1166, William was genuinely mourned. Palermo hung itself with black for three days, and the king's body was taken reverently to the cathedral where it was placed in a simple porphyry sarcophagus. His oldest surviving son, a 13-year-old boy also named William, was crowned, and all of Sicily seemed to be at peace. He was not a great king, nor perhaps even a good one. The many rebellions, the loss of North Africa, and the general shirking of his responsibility as king all rightfully stained his reputation. But he also had the impossible task of following a legendary father without the benefit of guidance or preparation. In the circumstances, his defense of Norman Sicily against a determined pope and two of the greatest emperors to ever sit on their respective thrones was a remarkable feat. It was a fleeting glimpse of what could have been. William certainly doesn't deserve to be called William the Bad. The real tragedy is that he could have been so much more. Join me next time as I look at his equally misnamed successor, William the Good, the last of the Houtville kings of Sicily.